Sam, this is mom. What's wrong? I have a sick feeling in my soul, and it has something to do with you. Do you need me to come over? Mom. Sam blurted into a sob. She left me. She's gone to live with her doctor. Oh, Sam, I'm sorry. Son, I was afraid when I saw her. I was afraid for her. Do you want me to come over? Not now, please. I, I want to be alone. I'll come over first thing in the morning, she said, after a long silence filled with love and support, bid him good night. He gave only passing thought to the fact that she had sensed his grief so far away. A mother's love is a powerful thing. Melody arrived in Birmingham, England, late in the afternoon after a slow 200-mile train ride through densely populated countryside. It had rained the entire way, yet her heart sang with anticipation. Marcia and two other ladies met her at the train station. They ran into one another's arms in a tumultuous collision of joy and sorrow. Marcia looked radiant notwithstanding the recent bad news of her father, happier than Melody had ever seen her. She still wore her long, her her hair long, her figure somewhat softer than before, but it all suited her very well. She spoke in glowing terms about her family, her husband, and her new life, and her faith. Melody was almost motivated to accuse a new Marcia of living in the old Marcia's body. Marcia was far too compassionate to say so, but to her eyes Melody looked haunted and weary. It made Marcia's soul ache to receive her little sister in such battered condition. They sat up until late that night as Melody divulged the details of the loss of her father and fortune and her miraculous escape into Wells. Marcia wanted to know every detail and wrung every scrap of information from her sister until Melody felt dry. Marcia's husband and child and children had long ago gone to bed. Melody's eyes were closing without her permission when her sister stood, took one step to the center of the room, and knelt down. She beckoned Melody to join her. Melody had never seen such behavior in her life and joined her there with a befuddled mind. Marcia took her hand, bowed her head, and prayed. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that my sister Melody has come to be with me safely. Oh, Heavenly Father, you know how much I love her and how many times I have prayed for her safety. I was beginning to think I might be bothering you. I asked so many times. I guess I don't really believe that, but I did ask a lot. I'm so grateful you answered my prayers. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We are so sad about Father. He was a good man, as you already know. But by now, you've already had some conversations with him, and I wouldn't be surprised if he was just as abrupt with you as he was with everyone else. But he was that way because he had to be, and we hope you'll forgive him and send him missionaries to teach him the gospel. Please tell him how much I love thy gospel, and tell him I'll be so happy if he will listen to the missionaries you send. Heavenly Father, I want to end this prayer by sending my voice to your throne in gratitude once again for bringing Melody safely to me, for sending the nice old man to help her and letting the missionaries teach her a little and give her your book. It is all truly amazing to me, but you know how I've always, how I'm always a little overwhelmed by how good you are to me. I love you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When Melody opened her eyes, Marsha's were still tightly shut. She had the distinct impression she was appending a silent P.S. to her prayers. She never heard her sister pray. Actually, except for Sam, she had never heard anyone pray who was not a minister. She had been told that her mother prayed, but she was too young to remember. Her father certainly didn't pray, and all the prayers she had ever heard from ministers seemed formal and impersonal. Her sister's prayer seemed as personal as if she were talking to someone right in the room. It was so filled with love and hope that Melody inward, inwardly wanted Marcia to show her how she could pray that way herself. Wanting to be able to pray suddenly caused Melody to feel peace and warmth in a way that she had never known before. 
The feeling was very small, but so beautiful it brought tears to her eyes. Quite unexpectedly, her father evolved from being dead to simply being absent. Enlightened, It lightened her grief and unburdened her soul as nothing else could. Her sister's simple prayer had brought her father back to life as surely as Jesus had raised Lazarus from the tomb. What had been an intolerable, inalterable dissolution of a man she dearly loved was now simply a separation of predictable duration. To her joy, with her father's sudden awakening in her heart, she found her mother similarly alive, and the joy was more than her heart could hold. When Marcia opened her eyes, melodies were closed, tears coursing softly down her cheeks. It took months to get Melody legally admitted into the country. It was very different, uh, difficult because England had no sympathy for Rhodesian refugees. It was England, after all, that had forced Ian Smith's government into economic poverty through the sanctions and orchestrated their overthrow. Melody ultimately acquired citizenship through alternative means, at considerable expense. Melody paid for it all from the funds she had saved playing music in the park. She could easily earn several hundred pounds a day, approximately triple a working man's salary. She didn't like having to deal with the type of people who, for a price, could provide anything you desired. Yet at the time, it seemed she had no other choice. She was a fugitive, an illegal immigrant, political dis dissident, an undesirable foreigner. Subject to arrest and immediate deportation back to Rhodesia, it didn't take much imagination to realize what her fate would be in the hands of those who had killed her father. After gaining citizenship, Melody simply became, became a young woman of modest means and considerable talent, moving through the English economic system in an unremarkable way. During all this time, Melody had been un unemployed. As soon as she was legally able to do so, she scoured the area for any suitable employment. Without any formal training other than music, she could only find mind-numbing employment serving food, washing dishes, changing beds, or other menial labor. She considered going back to school to learn bookkeeping or some other trade, but her love was music and that alone. The thought of doing anything else filled her with frustration. Accordingly, she soon gravitated back to the very things she had discovered playing in the park. Melody applied for and received a business license and permit to perform on the streets, a thing that she had been lacking previously and proceeded to play at the park twice a week. She made more than sufficient for her needs with minimal effort. Besides, she loved it, was developing a devoted audience, and had plenty of time left for practicing the violin. Her eyes first fell on the upon Theodore after having played a stirring collection of old English church hymns. She nearly always concluded each concert with those hymns, and it always pleased her audience and consequently topped off each day's tips. Theodore appeared older, though he was not quite 30. Melody was just barely 21 at the time. He had dark eyes that sparkled like sapphires, a straight jawline and impressive dimples. His hair was parted on the top of his head and combed down the back. Perhaps the most noticeable characteristic was his fine clothing and long, white scarf, which lay loosely over his shoulders in a fashion quite uncommon. After nearly a year of making her living as a street minstrel, Melody had encountered nearly every form of human being possible. Of necessity, she had developed ready answers, quick responses, and packed comebacks for every possible situation. She was even taken the liberty of hiring a local street gang to watch out for her. Without exception, two or three long-haired boys showed up at each concert and watched her after her solicitously. They hardly realized they were mostly protecting her from themselves. When she looked up from packing her away her violin, Melody saw three people remaining 
of the rather large afternoon crowd, one neatly dressed gentleman and two scruffy teens. The gentleman was watching her intently while the street toughs were watching him maliciously. He was totally unaware of the dangerous position he had gotten himself into. Melody looked at the boys and shook her head with a smile. They nodded and backed away, but did not leave. Evening, miss, the gentleman said, doffing an invisible hat. His accent was British, almost aristocratic. Doffing his non-existent hat was a quaint gesture and intended to amuse her. It had the desired effect. She curtsied, put a hand on her cheek, and said, Why, good evening, governor. Her words were right out of a Charles Dickens novel she had just read, and at least a century more antiquated than his. Without intending to, she struck his funny bone a glancing blow, and he laughed so heartily for several seconds that she smiled in spite of herself. Oh, oh, excuse me. If it weren't for your accent, I'd accuse you of being an American, he said, forcing himself to calmness. Not at all, Melody admitted cheerfully. It's from a book by an Englishman, actually. I thought as much. I haven't actually heard anyone speak like that my whole life. Where are you from? From around here, she replied, as she tucked her violin under her arm. She rarely carried it by the handle. She had seen handles break, and the clasps sometimes popped open, letting the precious instruments fall to the pavement. Your English, your accent isn't English, he replied innocently. She decided to take it innocently. My mother was from Australia, she explained. It was a partial truth. Her mother had was born there, but had moved to England at age three. Her accent was decidedly not Australian, but only a linguist could have correctly labeled it Rhodesian. That would explain it, he replied cheerfully. I have to admit that I have become a fan of yours. This is the fourth time I've come to the park to hear you play. I haven't seen you here before, Melody said thoughtfully. The other times, I wore my work clothes. You probably didn't notice me dressed that way. People often look the other way when I'm in my work clothes. That could be, I guess. I don't really pay attention much to faces. Melody responded. She started walking back toward Marsh's apartment, her two guardians trailing her at a distance. They would remain with her until she was out of their area. It felt kind of good having them back there. They had come in handy a couple of times on her walk home. My name is Theodore. He offered her her hand. Theodore Lyman Tennyson II. He had quite proper. He said quite properly, bowing slightly at the waist. She took his hand and found it smooth, warm, and gentle, very different from her father's iron-like hands. Melody McElfaney, she replied. Ah, a good Scottish name. Irish, actually. My father's family were land barons in Ireland until sometime after the 20th, turn of the century. In reality, it had been a mere 25 years ago. Yes, I believe I've read some of your family's history. Come to think of it, there are some McElvaney's buried in an old church cemetery where I work, he said thoughtfully. You work at the church? She found it an odd employer for one dressed so well. Yes, Theodore replied, his mind obviously focusing on something else. Um, what do you do there? What kind of work are you in? Um, oh, excuse me, I was trying to remember the dates on the tombstones. I'm what one might call a caretaker. You take care of the building? That and other things. Why don't you play with some big orchestra? You certainly have the talent, he returned in an obvious change of subject. Melody's decided not to press him. He was apparently uncomfortable telling her about his job. He didn't have a particular problem with the idea that he was a janitor or a gardener, but apparently he did. Her father had been a farmer, and dirty hands seemed norm normal on a man. Whatever he did, he could afford at least one change of nice clothes, for he was wearing them. 
I do play with the City Orchestra, and I've been invited to play with the Liverpool Philharmonic when it comes here on tour next week, Melody explained happily. It was something she was looking forward to, for which she was dedicating many hours of preparation. Truly? I simply must get tickets. Will you tell me when the concert is? I should be most disappointed to miss it. I love orchestra, and I love your playing immensely. I'd love to go see you. If I don't guard myself, I'm going to fall in love with... This all came out in a rush. He blushed, cleared his throat, and concluded, Your music. Melody found it quite admirable that Theodore was innocent enough to blush. It believed the sleek, confident facade that he, that his clothing and demeanor implied. He shuffled his feet. Please forgive me. I didn't intend to. Melody mischievously decided to reward him for his impudence in the worst possible way. She leaned forward, kissed him softly on the cheek, straightened, flashed him her most dazzling smile, and said, Whatever for? She walked past him without another word. She dared to glance back many minutes later. He was still standing in the exact spot, a hand pressed to his cheek, where she had anointed him with her lips. That'll fix him for about a week, she thought <laughs> to herself playfully, fully intent on completely ignoring him the next time they crossed paths. It was a little mean, but he deserved it. In reality, it fixed him for about the rest of his life. Grandma Mahoy was with Sam when Princess came to get her twins. She arrived with a police car behind her. The officer stood with one hand on the butt of his pistol as Princess gathered the baby's things. The only thing she said to Sam was, I'll be in touch. She and the officer left in a swirl of dust. Sam felt as if his whole purpose for living had just walked through the door. The papers arrived a week later. Sam read them with deep regret. They outlined the details of their divorce. The important parts were that Princess wanted the home and all its furnishings except the piano. Sam could have the business and one car. Princess acquired sole custody of the girls, and he had visitation rights every other week on Saturday and Sunday. He would pay her a sizable sum each month until the girls reached 18. To him, it was like reading an execution order. He tried to sign it and could not. The paper sat on the living room coffee table for weeks. Finally, he wrote Princess a note explaining that he could not sign them and sent them back. The next day, he received a phone call from her attorney suggesting to contact an attorney because they were suing for divorce. With or without his signature, it was going to occur. That following evening, Sam was alone in the big house. It felt like a tomb. He wanted to pack up and move out to escape the memories. He sat at the piano and filled with a vision of her sitting beside him, her head resting gently on his chest. He almost stood to escape it, but instead he lifted the lid, laid on his hands on the keys, he was about to play when the Holy Spirit flooded over him. There was a single message, one he had never heard before. Record it, the sweet feeling said. He stood and found a small cassette recorder. He placed it on the piano and set it to record. For a long moment, he waited until sadness overwhelmed him, then love, then peace. Somewhere in his mind, he felt the joy loving princess had been, and how it had felt so eternal, so very forever. He said aloud, I have always loved you, and the music came. He had often felt the flow of music in his soul, but nothing ever like this. If there was a pure source of music, as there is a pure source of truth, he found it that night. Every note, every harmony, every delicate, breathlessly beautiful phrase was known to him. It was open to his mind as clearly as if he had been taught this haunting melody in some pre-mortal childhood, and had known it all his life. He played, and as he played, he spoke the words that carried the burden of his love. The music came to him in sweet flows of perfection, and he played with deepest feeling. 
When it was over, it was simply over, and the feeling passed. He reached up and clicked off the recorder. He popped the tape from the machine and dropped it into his pocket. He sat for a long time in silence. On impulse, Sam stood and went into his study. He addressed an envelope to a former missionary companion whom he knew to be successfully involved in the music industry. He dropped the tape inside and mailed it the next day. Two weeks later, to the day, he received a large brown envelope. He opened it and was surprised to find a piece of sheet music inside. It wasn't until he read the title that he began to understand. I have always loved you was in bold type across the front page. He sat at the piano and opened the music. The score was well done, and though somewhat simplified from the way he had played it on the tape, it was exactly as he remembered it. The words between the lines were all his as well. He was stunned to tears. There was a handwritten phone number on the first page. Mike, this is Sam Mahoy. It's like you... I like what you did with my song. Elder Mahoy, the voice said on the other line. I haven't heard from you since our mission, and then I get this tape with this hauntingly beautiful song on it. Hey, Sam, I knew you played, but I had no idea you wrote music as well. It's a fantastic piece, and I want to produce it. Well, I'm flattered, Sam says, but it's deeply personal, and I'm not quite sure I want to throw it out into the world. All love songs are deeply personal. All great love songs come from deep within the soul, from a place of beauty now scarred by pain. His friend observed quietly. Anyway, this song is a masterpiece. Don't you realize that, Sam? I, I don't know. Michael persisted. If you didn't want it published, why did you send it to me? Well, I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to send it to you, Sam replied candidly. His friend cleared his throat meaningfully. Well, let me rephrase the question then. If Heavenly Father didn't want it published, why did he prompt you to send it to me? Good point, Sam replied at length, still unsure. Sam, if you want, we can take your name off the title. You would still gain the some same money from it. Maybe that would help. I'm not concerned about money. Yeah, I heard you're doing really well. Listen, my friend, I'm going to publish this song one way or another. You'll have to sue me to stop it. So what do you say? I say go ahead. I doubt it will go anywhere. I just had feelings I put to music. It's much more than that, Michael disagreed. Sam, I've written and produced enough music to be able to spot inspiration. This music in, is timeless. I will go ahead. No, if we go ahead, you will become a music writing celebrity. I don't want to be a celebrity, Sam re replied dejectedly. What do you want? I want my wife back, Sam said with more honesty than he intended. There was a long silence on the phone. I'll get to work on this immediately. If you have anything to say about this, you will be hearing this tune on the radio in less than a month. A second package arrived two weeks later, with a cassette tape and a bundle of papers. Sam listened to the tape. Michael had written his song into a duet for a man and a woman. As Sam listened to the beautiful song, he could scarcely believe it was his own. In fact, it was not. It was something that had come from him, come to him, not from him. The papers were a standard publication contract. Sam didn't even read them, but signed several places and sent them back. Michael performed the piece at his next concert. Included it on his next CD, and good to his word, Sam heard it on the radio in a little more than a month from their phone conversation. The best part of it all was that no one suspected that he was the Samuel Mahoy. The several times someone asked if he were related, he replied, Not at all. How can one be related to oneself? Unthinkable. He had asked if it were him, he would have replied that it was. He was happier with anonymity. During the intervening weeks, it seemed to Sam as if he progressed through definite stages with his emotions. At first, 
He just couldn't accept that she had really left him. He kept expecting Princess to walk through the door happily, returning from shopping or something. After that, he felt angry and wanted to kill the loathsome man who had taken him from her. Her from him. He realized about... He fantasized about throwing a firebomb through the front window of Dr. Rob's medical practice, or even better, through the window of his home while he and Princess were there. Let them see if they can be in love while in the house burns down around them, he screamed in his mind. That lasted for a couple weeks. After that, Sam begged Heavenly Father to work a miracle and let her come home and love him again. He made promises, bargains, deals with God to get her back. Even knowing that she was with that slime ball, slime ball couldn't stop him from wanting her back. The thought of her being with someone else nauseated and disgusted him, and it didn't make him stop loving her. The most difficult stage, though, was acceptance. In time, it finally dawned on him that Princess was gone for good. When acceptance finally came to him, he wept for three days, grew a beard, and pouted. In time, though, he began to think his heart may heal. Sam was not surprised when his attorney finally delivered, or delivered the final papers to his office. Sam <clears throat> had attended none of the divorce proceedings, preferring to never see her again. His fear was that he would start loving her again. And he was not willing to go through all that anguish. He took the papers home and flopped them on the coffee table, intending to sign them just later. As soon as he did, he would have to move out of the house, and another phase of his life would come to an end. In many ways, he dreaded moving from his dream home. In others, he was anxious to get on with his life. It was not unusual for people to come and visit, especially since word spread of Princess's absence. The ward had rallied around him, and someone came almost every evening to make sure that he was all right and not suffering unduly. When the doorbell rang it, its rich melody, he was in the kitchen fussing with a Cajun dish he had just fixed. He lifted it from the oven, set it on top, then hurried to the door as it rang the third time. He switched on the porch light and pulled out, pulled open the heavy door. <laughs> door. Oak door. Hello, she said quietly in the awkward silence. Princess? Sam gasped. He was both pleased and appalled. He was torn between sweeping her into his arms and strangling her there on the spot. He nearly settled the issue by slamming the door in her face, but remained paralyzed with indecision. May I come in, Sam? She asked timidly and glanced toward the big room uncert uncertainly. Sam realized he was blocking her way and released the door, stepped aside. She smiled briefly and walked past. He caught a whiff of her perfume as she walked by and it pierced him. Suddenly, he was angry, angry that she and her perfume had left him, angry that she had betrayed him, and angry that she had returned to torture him. Why are you here? I'll be out in a few days, and it'll be all yours. You didn't need to come and torment me, he said bitterly with the door still open. Sam, I didn't come to torment you. I almost didn't come at all, she replied soberly and unbuttoned her coat. It was October, and the air was frosty with the promise of winter. Sam closed the door a little too hard. Princess winced at the sound. I wish you hadn't come, he said honestly, not intending to be cruel. Princess looked from the floor to his eyes, then back down again. I had to, she replied meekly. Why, to gloat, to see if I hadn't suffered enough? To survey your castle while the former occupants can still see your triumph? To let me smell your perfume one more time, he choked out. Why did you come here, he demanded. None of that, Sam, nothing like that. 
Hearing her say his name pierced through him like an arrow, his heart tried to beat harder, to stop dead at all at the same moment. It was not a pleasant sensation. He realized with a start that he still loved her, and that made him even more angry. A battle started between love and hate, which tore at his soul. Tears formed in his eyes, and he had to blink hard to keep them inside. Princess walked to the piano and ran a hand softly across its rim. The lid was up. Sam could see her face in the polished wood. He looked away. Is this where you wrote it? She asked innocently. It was an odd question. Wrote what? My song. Your song? The one that plays on the radio every 15 minutes all day long, she said, and rolled her eyes into her head in mock displeasure. Oh, it's not your song. Whose then? Who did you write it for? Who have you always loved? Is there someone that I don't know about? Princess asked, looking around the room as if expecting to find someone. You know there isn't, he replied quietly. Then you did write it for me? It was not meant to be a question, but came out unsure. I wrote it about you, perhaps, not for you. What's the difference? The difference is, that was before. Before what, Sam? Before you betrayed me, before you betrayed us. He replied with more anger than he intended, but the anger was there, hot and insistent. It caused his skin to crawl and his fingers ached to throttle something, to destroy something that he could not never be fixed again. Princess took a tentative step toward him. Sam, the words say, I will spend forever loving you. Are you telling me you no longer love me? Has forever ended so soon? Sam stood in silence, rocking back and forth as if standing on a ship. He had to hold onto the piano to steady himself. He couldn't believe he was having this conversation. If she hadn't come back to torture him, as she claimed, she was doing a thorough job of doing it just the same. Forever came to an end when you walked through the door and went to his bed instead of mine, he said with a steely coldness. To his surprise, a tear sprang to her eyes and rolled down her cheek. She made no attempt to wipe it away. Then you don't love me anymore? Sam almost screamed at her. If for no other reason than to hurt her, but the words could not come. His anger was hot, not cold. Hot angers flared to hurt back as a defense. Cold anger craves revenge. A long silence passed. Princess. Her name stuck in his throat. He swallowed hard. I do still love you, I'm afraid. A smile brightened her face. He wasn't finished. But I'm afraid that I can't forgive you he said in a small voice. I'm trying as hard as I can not to love you. I have already started to succeed at least I thought so 30 minutes ago, he said very quietly. Sam, I have listened to you tell me that you love me every 15 minutes for the past two weeks. Every time I hear that music, I want to cry. I can't escape your telling me that you love me. You tell me in my car, in the grocery store, in the vehicles behind me, at the stop sign, everywhere. I've heard it so many times that I realized something I didn't understand a month ago. What's that? He asked blandly, trying hard to convince himself that he didn't want to hear her answer and altogether failing. I realized that I... She paused to collect herself. When she continued, her voice was very small. I realized that not only do I still love you, but I'm hopelessly in love with you. Very, very much... I'm so sorry. She paused for a long time. I want to come home, she said. Her voice sounded very childlike, afraid and lost. It made his heart ache even more, if that was even possible. Sam fell into the couch as if he had just been slugged. His, he buried his face in his hands and silently wept. 
For a long time he wept until the grief was past. When he was finished, he looked at her. She had been crying too, silently, painfully. She looked at him and smiled hopefully, but he could not return it. I wish you had not come here tonight, Sam said. It would have been easier if you would just stay where you belong with him, he added, not intending to emphasize the last word as much as he had. But Sam, I just told you that I love you. Doesn't that mean anything? Sam stared at her with a wounded expression. Yes. It means you are going to be much, much harder to forget. It means that now I'm going to have to hate you and despise you in order to forget you. Before, I only had to be angry and unforgiving. Now, I have to be disgusted by you. I didn't want that, Princess. Don't you see? You shouldn't have come. Princess joked back a strangled sob. I know you love me, Sam. Do you really want me to just walk out that door and never come back, even though you know I do really honestly love you? Is that what you want? No. Yes. I mean, there is no choice. Why, Sam? Why? She nearly shouted between sobs. His face contorted with pain, Sam says. Because every time I see you, I think of you with him. Every time I think of your face, I think of you touching it. Every time I see your lips, I see you kissing them. No, I see him kissing them. <laughs> it isn't because I don't love you or because you don't love me. It's because I can't look at you anymore. It's because I don't respect you. We have lost the glue that holds relationship together. Trust, it's not that I don't love you. It's that I don't want you. He was shouting at her now. Princess flinched at every of his words as if they were bullets striking her. Her shoulders trembled as she wept. She buried her hands in her face and her soul wailed as if dying. Suddenly she stood. She moved with determination toward the door, clutching her throat about her. Oh my God. Clutching her throat. Clutching her coat about her. <laughs> Very different mental image there. Okay. Sam looked away. He heard the door open and close, and she was gone from his life, gone forever. Sam's eyes fell on the divorce documents still lying there as he had dropped them. He pulled a pen from his pocket, flipped to the last page, and signed with a flourish. He was angry again, and this time it was cold. He marched to the door, yanked it open. Princess had started her car, and she saw him coming into the headlights. She opened the door and stood again, a look of strangled hope on her face. Sam stomped up to her, jamming the papers in her face, opened his mouth to speak the last hateful words that would erase her from his life forever. Just as his voice began, he felt a wash of power penetrate him, and a voice more powerful than a billion decibels blasted through his soul. Its message was unmistakable. These words thundered through his mind. At the peril of thine own soul. He took a step back as if struck by lightning. He gasped, clutched his chest, and fell to the ground on his knees, divorce papers scattering on the frozen ground. Princess was terrified by all this, and slamming the car door shut, ran to kneel beside him. She put a hand on his forehead, then on his neck, to see if he was having a heart attack. She decided nothing obviously was amiss, yet something was terribly wrong. She began to cry tears of true panic. What's wrong, Sam? What's wrong? Please, be all right. I'm, I'm leaving now. Just relax. I'm sorry I hurt you. You're right. I, I shouldn't have come. Can you get up? Just just get up. I know you're okay, and I'll leave. I won't come back to hurt you again, I promise, Sam. She tugged on his arm. He looked up at her. Her hair had fallen onto his shoulder. It smelled that special, special smell that he had loved so long, so well, so perfectly. Suddenly, unexpectedly, the anger left. The pride melted, the hurt burrowed out of sight, and he could stand it no longer. 
Sam looped an arm around her neck and pulled her to him so hard she literally fell into his arms. He lifted her to him slowly, gently, and kissed her with all the love he had thought gone and forgotten. Startled, Princess stared at him wide-eyed. Then, feeling his tenderness, she closed her eyes and surrendered. Sam held and kissed her for a long while, bathing her face in his tears. Finally chilled and feeling repentant, he stood and in a single powerful move lifted her with him. She looped an arm around his neck, and her lips still pressed against his. He carried her into the house and stood near the piano. Wonder, fear, doubt, and hope simultaneously played on her face. Sam studied her face, then pulled her into his arms and held her, then pushed her at arm's length to study her again, then pulled her to him again. This he did many times until they were both confused. Sam, please talk to me, Princess finally said as he held her fiercely against him. I love you, he said in a simple explanation. It was exactly what she wanted to hear. I love you too, she sobbed back, her voice muffled against her chest. But can you forgive me? Can you accept me back even knowing what I've done? Princess, it feels so good to say your name again, he interjected. Princess, inside me it still hurts. It hurts more fiercely than anything I've ever felt. But I love you, and I want you, and I want to forgive you. In time, with Heavenly Father's help, I will. Until then, I'll just concentrate on what is, not what isn't. I'm so sorry, she sobbed and wrapped her arms around him again very tightly. He held her for a long time. I don't know what has come over me. I just know that I want to come home. More than anything in this world, I know that I love you and I want to be with you. I want to be passionate like we used to be, she said shyly, but with certainty. One thing at a time, Sam responded sadly. One thing at a time. He knew some healing had to occur first. I understand. Oh, she said suddenly, pushing him away. I need to get the babies there in the car. They are, Sam demanded. Are they all right? They were just fine a minute ago. Come on, let's go get them. That is, if they are spending the night here, she asked, not entirely sure. Where else? He demanded happily. This is where they belong. Then more softly, this is where you belong. At that moment, they were startled to hear the high-pitched whine of a jet engine and the boom 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 of a helicopter in the yard. They exchanged puzzled looks and Sam walked to the door while looking at this watch. It was late. He pulled open the door to a hurricane of blowing snow. The helicopter was just settling a short distance from the house, its blades blasting a hurricane of snow at them. Sam pushed the door closed against the gale. Sam knew whoever was in the chopper would wait for the swirl of snow to die down before coming to the door. You don't suppose that could be your father, do you? Sam asked in amazement. Princess's eyes grew wider. I don't know, but I wouldn't really put anything past him. Me either, Sam agreed with mixed feelings. It's sure odd timing, though. Very odd, Princess agreed. Suspicion grew quickly, grew stronger than curiosity. Sam opened the door. No, Sam, open the door. Open it back up, Princess cried. Sam pulled the door back open. Look, she screamed. Sam's eyes followed her shaking finger. He stepped back with a gasp. The hated 22 screamed at them in large red figures from the door. Paint dripped from them like blood. At the moment, they heard the glass break. Sam bolted through the door, just a step ahead of Princess. A 22 had also been painted on the windshield of the car. A figure was darting toward the chopper, even as it lifted into the air. Sam and Princess ignored the whipping snow and ran to the car. The passenger door window had been smashed, and the door was still locked. 
Princess had snapped the electric door locks even as she ran to help Sam. The childproof weird door locks meant the door could not be opened from either side while locked. It was the only reason their babies were still in the car. A baby blanket lay outside in the snow. A tightly strapped car seat had kept the thugs from removing car seats and babies together. It was obviously that they had tried. One of the harness straps holding Bonnie into her seat had been cut with a knife. Terrified, they carried their babies inside, their crying babies inside. Though frightened by the noise and the blowing snow, the twins qu quieted quickly and went back to sleep. Princess and Sam put them in their cribs in utter silence. It was too terrible to contemplate, and both he and Princess were numb, but at least they were numb together, and that mercifully softened the blow. Theodore was at Melody's Sunday afternoon performance in the park. He seemed impatient for the two hours to pass. He walked up to Melody straight away after the concert and held out four tickets with a huge grin as if they were winning lottery tickets. I purchased tickets to all four performances. His voice was almost squeaky with excitement. She decided to carry through on the brush-off portion of the punishment. She couldn't make herself be so rude as to completely ignore him, so she decided on a low-key response instead. You'll surely tire of it then. It's the same program each night. His face fell for just an instant and then brightened. I'll enjoy the concert the, uh, the first night and I'll enjoy watching you the other nights, he said, in what seemed to her to be an answer he had carefully crafted and rehearsed. It was, in fact, utterly spontaneous. That's nice. I'll see you then. Melody turned and walked away. She didn't need to look back to know that he was standing there perplexed. She Had she looked back, she would have seen a man with a wounded heart. It's a good thing she didn't, for as tender as her heart was, she probably would have run back, begged his forgiveness, and hugged him until he was thoroughly confused. Theodore attended all four concerts. Melody caught sight of him out of the corner of her eye. His face was plainly enthralled. She played first chair and was guest soloist for one of Beethoven's pieces. She had played beyond herself that night, each night, and the crowd was very appreciative. It was a glorious thing to be part of such beautiful music. Melody fully expected Theodore to come charging onto the stage after each concert to congratulate her, but he did not. After the fourth night, she fully expected it, but again, he evaporated with the crowd. As she rode home in the cab, Melody could not help feeling a little disappointed. Melody's enigmatic church employee did not show up for the performance in the park for almost three weeks. For the first week, she felt very angry that he would not take her teasing so to heart. The second week, she felt angry at herself for skewering him so badly. The third week, she simply felt deeply disappointed. When he did return, it was Melody's last outdoor performance of the year. The afternoons were beginning to be blustery and the first curtain call to, of fall. So the rains would begin and not relent until they had turned into snow. It was a brilliantly sunny afternoon with a tease of crispness in the air. A light breeze brought the fresh smell of the ocean to the park. As if sensing this would be her last public performance until spring and perhaps forever, loyal listeners turned out in large numbers. She no longer stood on the sidewalk, but had moved to a place in, of honor inside the small gazebo at the center of the park. The little building amplified the sound, provided an impromptu stage with a pleasant backdrop. She often wore a formal-length, deep blue velvet dress with a white collar, white fingerless gloves, and white high heels. To see one so attractive making such startlingly beautiful music was so unexpectedly grand that few passers-by could actually pass by. Theodore didn't arrive until late in the performance and stood far back in the crowd. 
When it was over, he waited for the press of people to thin before coming toward her. He seemed unsure. She didn't blame him after her prank at his response. Hello, Melody, he said quietly. I'm sorry I've missed so many of your performances. I really don't blame you, she answered. Theodore sounded baffled. Oh, why don't you blame me? He was dressed almost as she remembered, except his white scarf was now soft wool rather than silk. Melody blushed, which not only intrigued Theodore, but also charmed him. I owe you an apology for teasing you so shamelessly. I wouldn't have come to my concerts either. His smile brightened. Whatever are you talking about, he asked, shaking from side to side. Well, when I, I mean, because, why didn't you come to my concerts? She finally asked. I had final examinations this whole last month, plus I finished my thesis, so I didn't just, I just didn't have the time. I didn't miss your music terribly, though. I hope you don't think badly of me for not coming. Melody looked at him incredulously, her eyebrows raised in surprise. You're not mad at me? You just had to study? She asked with wonder in her voice, at the same time laughing at herself. It occurred to her that he had, she had been pretty self-centered to think the whole world was in orbit around her, as if she were the sun. Why would I be angry at you? I have thought nothing but fond thoughts about you this last month as I sat in the dreary cl classrooms making hen scratchings on scraps of paper. Melody gathered up his, her things and she tried to thank him. Think of a graceful way to rescue herself from her own foolishness. How did it go? Did you pass? She asked in a blatant attempt to change the subject. He looked at her through narrowed eyes. Then quickly smiled again. I did, he finally said happily. I'm now a full-fledged doctor of philosophy. Fantastic, she cried, hardly able to comprehend the jump from janitor to student to doctor. She blinked her eyes rapidly as if the sun were too bright. You never mentioned to me that you were getting a, your PhD, she finally said, a note of accusation in her voice. You never asked, he answered cheerfully. I have an idea. Why don't you help me celebrate? She wasn't surprised, really. She had been asked out to dinner quite a few times by handsome young men, and some not so young, and some not so handsome. She would have been disappointed had he not asked her. Perhaps, she replied coyly. He smiled and took a slip of paper from his pocket and wrote for a moment. When she took it, she was surprised to see that it held the name of a church and a date about a month away. What's this? she asked suspiciously, expecting some grandiose arrangement for a date with her. Part of my graduation requirement is to deliver a doctrinal dissertation before the faculty and the public. I have the option of having some guest speakers or performers join me. I think it would be jolly wonderful to have you play something appropriate just before my speech. What do you say? Will you do it? But I thought, please don't say no. It would help me relax. I'm so tense about this, you see. Every time you play, you exude confidence and peace. I just know having you play for me bef just before will make all the difference in the world. Won't you say yes? Well, with that much fanfare, I don't see how much I could refuse, she replied a little too soberly. She had certainly not expected this. Jolly good, he exclaimed. Well, I'll see you then, he concluded and turned to walk away. Jolly good, she echoed, half in jest, half in sarcasm. He walked away briskly. He didn't need to turn around to know that she was standing there trying to figure all that out. It's a good thing he didn't, for had he, he would have seen an astonishingly beautiful young woman in a blue velvet dress, standing there with tears in her eyes. As tender as his heart was in regard to her, he could not have restrained himself from running back, gathering her into his arms, and confessing the depth of his true feelings for her. 
Then they would have both been thoroughly confused. Except for the name of the church, Melody had no idea how to reach him. A dozen times she stopped herself from marching over there, half to inquire what type of music he desired, and the other half to find out what he really did at the church, and another half to plumb the depths of her own feelings concerning him. Of course, that made more than two halves, but she did feel about twice confused concerning him. Sam spent all of the next day talking with the police, trying to neutralize the threat of a kidnapping attempt. After a full day of probing questions and toothless promises, the police finally left. Their filial suggestion was for Sam to hire a bodyguard. Their day had been so taxing that they had not had time to discuss Princess's miraculous return the night before, nor Sam's powerful change of heart just moments before the kidnapping attempt. They were just returning from putting away two very sleepy girls to bed. I'm exhausted, Princess said as they passed their room. I think I'll turn in. It's been an emotionally draining day, she said with a sigh. I'll grab a blanket, Sam said as he hurried into the room. He returned with a pillow and his blanket. He smiled as he passed her near the stairs. Even sleeping apart, it seemed wonderful to have her home. Oh, there's something else I need to tell you, Princess said as she started down the stairs. He stopped on the third tread and turned back. He was tired of surprises and being devastated by sudden revelations. His face betrayed his angst. What's that? He asked a little petulantly. You remember Dr. Rob? Sam's face hardened. Oh, definitely. Well, last night you asked me why I was here. The reason I came here was because he threw me out of his house, she said a little sheepishly. So you came here because you had nowhere else to go, he asked, feeling sick inside again. He thought she had returned because she realized she truly loved him, not because she was homeless. Sam, he threw me out the very first evening. I never did stay at his house. We spent the whole time with my friend Heather in Anchorage. You never did stay at his house? Sam asked, his voice laced with disbelief. That's the wrong question, she replied brightly. You're supposed to ask me why he threw me out. Sam was on the verge of nausea, but he complied in a small voice. Okay, why did he throw you out? Because I refused to be intimate with him. She replied, her head lowered, her eyes fixed upon him. He kicked you out because you stopped sleeping with him? Is that supposed to make me feel better? That isn't what I said. I said he kicked me out because I refused to be intimate with him. You have to start something before you can stop it. Wait a minute, are you saying you never did? Princess's face lit up. She merely nodded. But when you came home, you were so changed, he said, struggling for the right words. How come? Princess drew a deep breath and blew it back out, as if stealing herself for a difficult explanation. That last two weeks of the retreat, Dr. Rob was very forward. He made so many advances at me. I denied him, but he wanted me every time. But by the time I got home, I was, um, well, you were there, she concluded, embarrassed. So you never was all that Sam could stutter? No, never, she said. An odd look of quasi-justification mixed with shame on her face. You didn't? No. Princess shook her head emphatically. I didn't. And after you went to his house, you didn't? Sam, I know you've lost faith in me, but think about it. I'm not promiscuous. It's not my nature. I was confused, not sleeping around. I thought I had fallen out of love with you, and I was so uncertain about my feelings for him. I had been so sick and he healed me i was in love with love and hero worship and perhaps the idea of a wild romance 
Sam shook his head unbelievingly. But I accused you, and you didn't deny it. You just said you didn't see it that way, and that was the only thing that mattered, was that you loved him and not me. You led me to believe that you had been with him, he accused loudly. Princess shook her head. Sam, I'm sorry, but I think it would be more accurate to say that I let you believe that more than I led you to believe it. I was surprised you came to that conclusion, and it honestly just made me angrier. So I let you continue believing it, partly out of spite. I was angry and confused and upset and wanted you to hate me so I could feel justified in leaving you, but I never slept with him. Sam wasn't convinced. Didn't he try to seduce you that first evening? Oh, yes, she replied, her face reddening. Constantly, he wooed me, dined me, promised me the sky and the stars. He told me, where have you been all my life? It's every girl's dream of being swept off her feet by some handsome hero. She cleared her throat in an embarrassed way before continuing. I do have a confession to make, although not as severe as the one previously had expected. Sam sat down heavily on the top step, and Prince Princess knelt beside him. The first night after I left, he was so romantic, so persuasive and gallant, she admitted. I felt so, so female, I guess. I just let him kiss me, a lot, and hold me. But when he tried to do more, I just couldn't do it. I kept thinking about you, and I just couldn't. Everything inside me cried out against it, and at that point I knew I still loved you. I made him stop, and it was very difficult. He turned ugly. He was not a gracious loser. I almost had to fight my way out of his house, but I did, and I left. I have slept at Heather's every night since. I haven't spoken to Dr. Rob for over a month. Oh, was all Sam could say. The vision of her kissing him was plain before his eyes, and he didn't like it. Sam, listen to me, Princess said, interrupting a dark reverie. He looked into her eyes and saw love and deep regret. I know I sinned. I know I offended and hurt you horribly. I was weak, but in a way, I was also strong. Do you have any idea how hard it is to let something go that far and then tell them you won't go on? It was the hardest, most humiliating, devastating, embarrassing, and stupid thing I have ever done, she said, tears gathering in her eyes. She composed herself and continued. At that point, I knew I was in deep trouble, badly mistaken, and totally in error, standing in an evil man's home in jeopardy of my soul. Princess shuddered involuntarily before she went on. As soon as I can arrange it, I'm going to talk, go talk to the bishop, and I'll do whatever it takes to become pure again, she said soberly. Sam, I'm so, so sorry. I know I offended you, and the Heavenly Father, and the girls. I want to repent with all my heart. I want to change. She began to sob, her whole body shaking. She looked up at him, her eyes swollen but determined. I want to find my real self again, the woman that I know that I am, the woman I can be. So there is a favor that I must ask of you. She drew a ragged breath before continuing. Sam, I have let you and everybody else in Alaska call me Princess. It was a sweet nickname, and I am flattered by your kindness, but really, I am not a princess. I need to find the real me. I want to be true to myself once again. She looked beseechingly into his eyes. Sam, I would like you to call me by my real name. I want you to call me by Dawn. Please, would you do that for me? Sam was stunned to silence. It was all more than he could assimilate and understand. His heart felt like someone had been playing crack the whip with his emotions, and he had lost grip and been flung off into a thicket of thorns. But he could tell that she was serious in her introspection and resolve. He answered slowly. I guess I can try, he said, looking at his hands.
After all, you were Don when I first fell in love with you. His eyes fell on their family picture in the hallway. But it will take me a while. All of this will take me a long, long while. I know. Thank you, Princess whispered. Then she slowly took him by the arm and escorted him to their room. They spent the whole night in one another's arms. They were together, apart, in love, hurting so close, so far away. Neither of them slept. Dawn, as she now asked everyone to call her, was lovingly dealt with by the Lord's appointed judges the following Sunday evening. She cried bitterly in front of them. Sam had only been invited to attend a small portion of the proceedings, and it made him weep for her to have to go through it. Yet afterward, she had a glimmer of hope and was filled with a new determination. Paying a price was cathartic and even therapeutic to her as she sought to feel her way home. It was hard for her to pass the sacrament tray without partaking. It was hard for Sam to watch her to do so. He felt a cautious love for his wife, but not trust, and she he sought earnestly that he could learn to forgive and perhaps one day to forget. He knew this could only come as a gift of the Spirit, and he prayed that it would be bestowed upon him. Monday morning, Sam contacted Crichton and Dangerfield, a nationwide detective agency. Sam took photos, police reports, and everything he had collected regarding his tormentors. He laid 20000 in cash on their desk and told them to use every resource to find who they were and what they wanted. Crichton and Dangerfield declined to take the case. No amount of money would change their mind, nor would they explain why. Sam walked from their office stunned. For the first time in his life, he truly felt afraid. The police were willing but ineffective. The FBI was interested but not motivated, since no real crimes other than petty vandalism had been committed. Beyond all that, there were no telling clues, not even one. As he was driving home, he prayed earnestly. For some reason to Sam... Driving was an invitation to pray. Almost every time he slid behind the wheel, the spirit would gently slide in with him. He often found solace, relief, and peace while driving. As he drove, he felt the familiar stirrings of truth and felt his soul relax and begin to soar. In a flash that warmed his soul, a memory surfaced of an account he had read in a newspaper a year ago. The article involved a man whose ex-wife had kidnapped his two young daughters and taken them to South Africa. The article gave a sketchy account of a daring rescue that involved international mercenaries re-kidnapping the girls and lots of cash. The father only acted after waiting three years for word of his children. One evening, he received a brief call from his oldest daughter, then 14, crying and begging him to take them home. The call lasted less than 20 seconds. The planning and eventually successful rescue took over three years. Of course, the man's name was not even given in the article. Sam immediately returned to Crichton and Dangerfield, who accepted a thousand to find the man's identity. Scarcely a week had passed, Sam was grading a small shipment of diamonds at his desk. A soft knock on his open door brought him eye to eye with a man standing stiffly in the doorway. Sam carefully folded the gems into their packet, slipped them into his desk. He stood as the man walked across the hardwood floor, his eyes darting quickly about. His visitor wore old denim jeans a dark brown leather jacket and hiking boots. He wore a ponytail and a dark brown of dark brown hair, heavily streaked with gray. He was somewhat shorter than Sam and walked with ease of someone familiar with the outdoors. The man's eyes were a very light gray and gave the impression of a hidden intelligence. His face was heavily tanned beneath a leather Aussie hat whose left brim was faceted up 
with a gold medallion. All this gave the impression that he had just returned from digging for treasure in Egypt. An air of confidence gave the added impression he had succeeded. Sam offered his hand, which the man took in a strong grip. Sam judged his age, a little shy of sixty. I understand you've been looking for me, Mr. Mahoy, the man said with a gravely, gravelly voice, his eyes locked on Sam's. I have no idea who you are, Sam replied as he motioned the seat on the opposite side of the desk. Instead of sitting, the man turned and swung the door closed, then took the offered seat. I was contacted by Crichton and Dangerfield. They said you wanted to talk to me. Oh, I understand now, Sam said, suddenly off guard. He struggled for a moment to know where to begin. What do you want? The man asked in a steady voice. I need your help, Sam replied slowly. With? There was a kidnapping attempt on my daughters a few days ago. Why contact me? The police are at a standstill. There are no clues. Why contact me? The stranger asked again. I'm at a loss. I've got to do something. I read about your rescue of your daughters. That was almost 20 years ago, the man interrupted. The voice was a little perturbed. The articles gave no indication when it occurred. It seemed recent. Newspapers almost always get it wrong, he said, without emotion. I've noticed, Sam replied, attempting to ease the tension in the room with a smile. The man wasn't amused. Before I walk out of here, I ask you again, why did you contact me? Sam leaned forward in his chair and steepled his fingers under his nose, his elbows on the desk. He did not know how to answer the question until he felt the spirit move him. The answer was incredibly simple, because it was the truth. I was praying urgently, seeking direction, and your name and story came into my heart. I contacted you because it was the right thing to do, Sam answered. The man leaned back in his chair, as if suddenly deflated. His slight edge of aggression seemed to evaporate. Almost a full minute elapsed in silence before he replied. That is probably the only answer that it could have stopped me from storming out of your office. Please explain. Mr. Mahoy, please call me Sam. The man's demeanor, if anything, grew annoyed. Sam, you have to understand. Rescuing my daughter sucked the life out of me. It took more courage than I actually had. It left me psychologically, emotionally, and financially bankrupt. The only good thing that came from it was that I got my daughters back, and I consider it all worth it. But I have no desire to become entangled in some new international intrigue. I don't think I could survive it. That isn't exactly what I was hoping you would say, Sam replied quietly. I know, but it is the truth. Don't get me wrong. I owe God a great deal. Our little rescue was much more than a miracle than a precision rescue. We did our best, but there is no doubt in my mind that we succeeded, succeeded by divine intervention. I am willing to do what I can, but I'm afraid it's precious little. Apparently that will be enough, Sam said, opening both palms heavenward. I hope so. Me too. Sam's enigmatic visitor hesitated before he spoke. There is one tidbit of information that may help you. It's something the man from Crichton and Dangerfield told me. He mentioned is they had a client conflict with you. What do you suppose that means? Sam asked. It means a bunch of things. First of all, it means that their firm apparently did some work for whoever is harassing you. They most probably didn't know they were assisting the criminal act at the time. My guess is that they were asked to gather and supply information about you, telling you they have a client conflict couldn't have been an accident, Sam observed. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sorry, Sam says. I don't believe you ever said your name. No, I didn't. My guess is that they were trying to help you without getting themselves into trouble with their former client. They must realize now that their client is capable of nasty retaliation if they find out. 
they're afraid, Sam observed, forcing himself to not press further for that man's name. Sam was willing to play whatever games were necessary to save his family. They should be. There's something else I know that could help. Which is, they don't necessarily want the 22 carat diamond. Sam was amazed. What do they want, then? Most probably revenge. Why do you say that? The man's eyes became steely. Because they tried to take your kids, that's an act of terrorism. They aren't after a refund, they want revenge, or they simply want your kids. But I haven't done anything to them, Sam cried. But you did. Sam's shoulders slumped. What? What did I do that would drive them to such dark depths? Apparently only they know that. But you and your wife certainly did something, or they wouldn't be after you like this. There is one other possibility, which is that this has little to do with you. Perhaps there's someone they wish to manipulate, someone who would be devastated by the loss of your daughters. Sam was momentarily slummed that this man knew his children were daughters, but chose not to act upon it. My parents, of course, are alarmed for the girls, but they don't have any enemies I know of. Besides, they haven't been contacted in any way. Your wife could be the target. Does she have any enemies? It is inconceivable to me. Can you think of anyone who could use your children to manipulate your wife into something she might not otherwise be willing to do, like leave you, perhaps? Who would want to do such a thing? Sam asked, and what about your wife's parents? Her father lives in South Africa. He was very upset that my wife came to America with me. If it makes any difference, he's a wealthy diamond... Let me guess, the man interrupted loudly. He's a diamond merchant and or smuggler. I understand in South Africa it's often about the same thing. I'll also wager that he had something to do with this 22 carat stone. My guess he's been smuggling diamonds long before, and undoubtedly long after this incident. I'll, I'd guess the stone belongs to you, but he has it. Yes, yes, Sam cried astonished. That was, in fact, the first time Sam had realized that someone working for his father-in-law had retrieved the real diamond from the airplane, and yet Princess's father had never even mentioned the diamond, let alone returned it. I think you just solved the puzzle, or at least, in part, the man, contem the man sat contemplatively for a moment. The possibilities I can see are that whoever is doing this is either after revenge against your father-in-law when he didn't continue, Sam said, or or it's your father-in-law who's behind it. What? Sam cried. His mysterious visitor gave him a steely look and stood. Either way, he's the key to the mystery and either way the only one who can stop it. So saying, he pulled the hat from his head for the first time to reveal a shiny bald dome. It unexpectedly added ten years to his age and made him look tired and vulnerable. He smiled and offered Sam his hand. Before returning the handshake, Sam reached into his desk and palmed a four-carat stone he had just been studying. He pressed the stone into the man's hand as they shook. The old gentleman looked truly surprised. I don't want anything for helping, he said, holding the stone towards Sam in the palm of his hand. It glittered like a tiny sun. You said you were financially bankrupt. That stone will easily reverse that. This stone is probably worth more than any home I've ever owned, he said in amazement. Then get a bigger one, Sam suggested. Buy something nice for the girls. The man's hand slowly closed around the stone. His eyes clouded with tears, and he nodded once, turned, and disappeared through the door. Sam never saw him again. Sam immediately opened his organizer and found Grandpa Polly's phone number. 
The phone rang six times before Princess's father answered, his British accent in full bloom. Sam quickly got to the point and related everything he had just learned. His father-in-law listened quietly. I'll take care of it, he said in a terse voice and hung up without saying goodbye.